Good evening. NASA lands its newest rover on Mars. What Governor Cuomo knew and when did he know it? And where's the police commissioner? The city council wants to know. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, February 18th, 2021. A NASA rover survived seven minutes of terror, decelerating from 12,000 miles an hour to make a soft landing on the red planet today at about 10 minutes before 4 p.m. Eastern time. Based on the odds of past missions, it was a 50-50 bet. Half of all attempts to reach Mars, a nearly 300-million-mile trip, have failed. Ground controllers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, cheered and exchanged fist bumps and high fives in triumph and relief on receiving information the Perseverance rover had touched down. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. And a few minutes later, the telemetry traveled the 11 and a half minutes distance at the speed of light to Earth, sending back the rover's first grainy black and white photo of the Martian surface, eliciting yet more cheers. All stations stand by for the images. Yes! The landing marks the third visit to Mars in just over a week. Two spacecraft from the United Arab Emirates and China have already entered orbit around the planet. But it was the United States mission that made the harrowing and ultimately successful soft landing. The car-sized plutonium-powered vehicle arrived at Jezero Crater, hitting NASA's smallest and trickiest target yet, a five-by-four-mile strip on an ancient river delta full of pits, cliffs, and fields of rock. If life ever flourished on Mars, it would have happened three billion to four billion years ago when water still flowed on the planet. Perseverance promises several space firsts. It carries to Mars a small helicopter named Ingenuity. If successful, it'll make five aerial hops carrying a camera emulating the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. It would mark the first powered flight on another planet. The rover will drill into the surface of the rust-colored planet, about half the size of Earth, in the search for signs of Marth. Mar, uh, pardon me, for signs of life. Three to four dozen chalk-sized samples will be sealed in tubes and set aside to be retrieved and brought home by another rocket ship as early as 2031. Meanwhile, we are not alone. China's spacecraft includes a smaller rover that also will seek evidence of life if it makes it safely down from orbit in May or June. Meanwhile, back on Earth and in New York City, the fight continues against COVID-19, a disease that's killed two million worldwide and half a million in the United States, despite humanity's great technological achievements. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced today teachers won't be required to get shots of the COVID vaccine to return to the classroom. Well, it depends on, the, I think, the degree of uh, the incidence of COVID in their area. I think teachers should be vaccinated. I don't know that they must be vaccinated before going in. We're very proud of what's in our bill when it comes to education, because this is where we're saying that we want the children to be in school. For that to happen, it takes some money. I want everybody to be vaccinated, and I certainly want our teachers to be. But it, depending on what the situation is in their area, where there is a high incidence of COVID, most of those schools are virtual or hybrid anyway. They're not actual, and the vaccination might not make it 
actual anyway. So again, there has to be a judgment made from the community as to how they go forward. Again, we want the vaccine to be there for everyone. But one of the fights we had, I use the word fight, that we had uh, with the Trump administration last year was that they wanted the funds in the bill only to go to schools that were actually open. And well, how could you do that? You are depriving so many schools who are lacking in ventilation and um, more space and more opportunity to hire teachers. Therefore, you were disadvantaging the most disadvantaged schools in the country. And that was Nancy Pelosi. She's the House Speaker. UFT President Michael Mulgrew made a statement today on the revised State Education Department COVID-19 testing rules, rules that are part of the city and state of New York's ginger steps towards bringing more students into the classroom. Mulgrew said random COVID testing has been an important part of our success in making schools the safest public spaces in New York City during in-person learning. Under the State Education Department's new amended guidelines, the city can maintain its aggressive testing regimen and help ensure the safety of students, staff, and their families. Today, Mayor Bill de Blasio made his daily announcement of COVID-19 indicators in New York City. The indicators for today, number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for COVID-19. Today's report, 262 patients, 57.09% confirmed positivity, hospitalization rate per 100,000, 442 Number two, new reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, uh, 3,216. Number three, percentage of people testing citywide positive for COVID-19. Today's report, also seven-day rolling average is 7.17%. Mayor de Blasio and then Health Commissioner Dr. David Chokshi passed on the latest Centers for Disease Control and Prevention mask guidelines. It's now two masks, one cloth and one surgical for the best protection against the coronavirus. The single most important thing remains wearing a face covering consistently and properly so that it covers both your nose and your mouth and you wear it both indoors and outdoors. First, tight makes right. Make sure the face covering fits snugly against the sides of the face without slipping. A snug fit will prevent you from breathing in or breathing out air droplets that may contain the virus. So when you're choosing a specific mask, look for features that keep the face covering tight. For example, nose wires, tightly woven fabric, and face masks with fitters or braces. You can knot the ear loops or fold and tuck unneeded material under the mask to prevent air from getting in and also from escaping. We do not recommend face coverings with an exhalation valve because these masks allow air to escape when you're breathing out. Second, two is better than one. Using two masks is more effective at stopping the spread of the virus. To double mask, use a cloth face covering over a disposable mask, not two disposable masks. Two of the disposable masks will not improve fit. Third, for those who are 65 or older and people with underlying medical conditions, such as diabetes, obesity, or hypertension, consider using a higher grade mask like a KN95. This also applies to household members and caregivers of people who are sick. Make sure not to confuse KN95s with N95s. 
Fourth, wear your face covering at home if you live with someone who tested positive for COVID-19 or were recently exposed to someone with the virus. I want to emphasize that we need to continue to follow the public health precautions we know work. Staying home if you're sick, keeping your hands clean, staying six feet apart and getting tested regularly. Health Commissioner Dr. David Chokshi. The new guidelines come as the number of cases continues to decline and the world embarks on the most aggressive vaccination program in history. President Joe Biden has promised to have 300 million doses of the vaccine in the United States by this summer. And in Albany, the fallout continues over revelations Governor Andrew Cuomo may have held back statistics showing his executive orders concerning nursing home patients at the beginning of the pandemic last year contributed to thousands of unnecessary deaths. The FBI and the United States Attorney's Office in Brooklyn have launched an investigation examining, at least in part, the actions by Cuomo's coronavirus task force. According to the Albany Times Union, the probe by the United States Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York is apparently focusing on the work of some of the senior members of the governor's task force. A spokesperson for the governor says Cuomo has known of the investigation for months. In March, the state health department issued an order directing nursing homes and other long-term care facilities to accept residents being discharged from hospitals, even if they were still testing positive for the infectious disease, if the facilities were able to properly care for them. The directive was rescinded two months later. Last month, Attorney General Letitia James issued a scathing report, including the practice increase the risk of COVID-19 infections at the congregate facilities. The governor has defended his officials who say they withheld information from lawmakers on nursing home deaths to stymie another investigation by the Trump administration they say was meant to be a political hit job. Yesterday, during a press conference, Cuomo railed against Queens Assemblyman Ron Kim. Kim has been one of the loudest voices in calling on Cuomo to be formally stripped of his emergency powers due to the alleged cover-up. Kim says Cuomo threatened to destroy me in retribution. In an angry response, Cuomo claimed the flushing legislator had engaged in a continued racket with business owners. All this was fuel for a city hall news conference with Mayor Bill de Blasio that centered on previous allegations of bullying and toxic behavior by Cuomo. Uh, that clearly needs to be a full investigation. We're talking about thousands of people who were lost, our seniors, our elders, families that still don't know the truth and the questions that need to be answered to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. There absolutely has to be a full investigation. The conversation that the governor had with Assemblyman Ron Kim, who says that he was threatened by Governor Cuomo, I wonder who you believe and if you personally have experienced any um, tough conversations with Governor Cuomo. Uh, many times, I believe Ron Kim. Um, first of all, you can just see by what he's saying. It's, it's from the heart, and it was a very painful experience for him. I believe him, and he did not deserve to be treated that way, and I admire him for coming forward and telling exactly what happened. A lot of folks who are progressive as well think that the criticism of the governor related to the nursing homes is a right-wing hit. Can you address that? I think it's a question of families who lost loved ones and the fact that clearly we weren't given the whole truth and we've got to figure out how to protect people going forward. No, I don't, I don't think it's coming from one side of the spectrum or another. I think it's a concern we're hearing from the families who lost their loved ones and across the spectrum. You know, what we've observed here between the governor and Kim seems 
pretty personal. I was wondering, based on the experiences you had with the governor, how you kind of characterize it. Look, I, I'm not here to provide analysis of the situation. I will say this, that, you know, someone being bullied is not acceptable. And Ron Kim was trying to raise real concerns and honest concerns on behalf of families in this city, in this state, who have lost loved ones. And that deserves respect. And he wasn't given respect. That's what I would say. You've known the governor for quite some time. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but from what you said earlier this morning, this sort of behavior, I think you view as typical of him. You referred to calls you'd been on with him before. Why do you think this is, given your experience, your, your kind of longtime relationship with the governor, why does he tend to treat people in these ways? I don't think it's just government. I mean, I think, you know, a number of your colleagues in the media will tell you about calls where they were berated and belittled. It's something that a lot of people in New York State have known about for a long time. I can't get into the why. That's a deeper question. I can only say it's a, it's a very unfortunate and inappropriate way to treat people. Again, Ron Kim, I believe him. It was important that he expressed his whole truth, and people should respect him for that. And he refused to be intimidated, and I give him credit for that. And that's uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, speaking earlier in a press conference earlier today. A report by Assemblyperson Kim shows that money from hospital and nursing home lobbying groups started flowing into Democratic Party coffers at the start of the pandemic. And that Cuomo's executive order granting immunity to the facilities was adopted by several states. All the states adopting Cuomo's order are among those with the highest rate of deaths in nursing homes. The background issue in all the disputes over COVID is political money, says Professor Emeritus Thomas Ferguson of the University of Massachusetts in Boston. He's co-author of a report looking into the role dark money had in the November election, where many Democrats thought they would do better. Despite beating Trump and winning the Senate, Democrats lost many seats in the House and in local races. Ferguson says the dark money flowed into the races at the last minute. Sums of money flow to the leadership of both parties. It's plainly clear in the data. You've effectively got two Democratic parties. You've got folks like AOC and others who are trying to do something about big money. But the bulk of the leadership of the party has clearly got an opposite point of view. They just have not moved seriously. And now that they're in power, by the way, they could move very easily to do this because they will name a chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's said to be Gary Gensler, who has generally a good reputation as a relatively serious regulator. They could immediately force all the public companies to disclose all of their donations, including the dark money, and they should do the charities. They could do that without going through Congress or anything. The SEC definitely has the power to do that. There's a big movement already underway to try to get that to happen. Let's see what they actually do. More broadly, you know, it's just obvious that the line that Sanders and to some extent Warren pushed in the Democratic primaries that they need Medicare for all. It's obvious that we do need this. I mean, there'd be a lot more people alive today if they didn't have to go through all these crazy 
electronic and regulatory hurdles just to sort of have doctors track them, to get the hospitals to track them. Dealing with the whole COVID business has from the beginning right to the latest stages, it's been a zoo. It's a completely unnecessary zoo. They should have had a good set of public, simply one set of accessible records for hospitals and doctors. They don't have it. And this is sort of a crazy situation. We're sitting here in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, the most basic stuff that people need, like medical care, even as I speak, I believe the deadlines. What you seem to be describing is that the money that lobbyists and other contributors pour into races basically decide the big issues of the day. This is not quite right. Ever since 2016, there's a small donation base in the Democratic Party. Sanders really did float to his narrow loss to Clinton on a wave of small money. But the rest of the Democratic Party doesn't do that trick. Future of democracy is basically, can you get big money under control? And in that sense, it's clearly inside the Democratic Party that the decisive battles are going to be fought in the next two to three years. What was the takeaway from the report that you guys did? that all the claims that were made early on about a huge Democratic Party fundraising advantage in 2020, which then led to this sort of shock that they hadn't done better in Congress, wasn't really true. There wasn't any huge Democratic Party advantage there. When you did all the cash up, you really have to be aware of how much money comes in in the late stages and how that total can vastly swell. And just as it had in 2016 when they saved the Senate but for the Republicans with a massive wave of money from private equity and other funders. And I thought that was what was going to happen this time, and that turned out to be right. Did you come up with in your report any ideas of where to go forward from this? The way forward is pretty obvious. You need public financing as quickly as possible. You need to get dark money out of the system, which you could do without big legal changes. The Federal Election Commission could make that much harder to do. And they got to bear down seriously on this. Have you heard anybody, by the way, talk about the Federal Election Commission as the administration comes in? Because I haven't. And that means that you don't think they have any reforms in mind? Well, have you heard any on political financing? Watch what Gensler does in the Securities and Exchange Commission. I think everybody needs to look at that. I also think they're the pension funds in New York. They're going around making some noises about private equity and stuff. They could make some noises and demand that these companies disclose the full range of their political donations. There is no way that that makes sense for the average pensioner to have folks just pouring money into the coffers of legislators in general at any level of the government. People will be disappointed when they find out their heroes have been getting money from the enemy. Uh, I wonder how many people would be hugely disappointed to find out that all their heroes are maybe, you know, all the glitters maybe was gold. I don't think people will be breaking up. Professor Emeritus Thomas Ferguson of the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And in New York City, the head of the city council's public safety committee blasted the top cops absence at a hearing on police reform bills 
It was the latest in a string of hearings to which Commissioner Dermot Shea sent underlings in his place. Mayor Bill de Blasio, who is working to pass a slew of police reforms, says Shea's absence before the committee was routine, although some council members are unhappy with aspects of the mayor's proposal that they feel don't go far enough in making cops accountable. The commissioner appears and and his predecessor commissioners have appeared typically uh, at the budget hearings each year. Uh, there's one in the, in the winter, one in the spring. Those tend to be extensive sessions, and the council members talk to the commissioner in a variety of ways all throughout the year, particularly uh, the public safety chair. That dialogue is really, really important, but this specific hearing was to talk about the package. We sent the representatives who have been working on the package of reforms, and they addressed our concerns. But you know what? We're going to be working closely with the council over the coming weeks. You know, we expressed our views, but we're going to be in dialogue with the council and we are going to get this reform package done by the end of March. Shea last appeared before the council in May at a budget hearing that turned into a referendum on how police were enforcing social distancing in different neighborhoods. And the National Lawyers Guild, or NLG, membership voted to pass a resolution supporting police abolition following its Law for the People convention last fall, claiming the institution of policing is incompatible with the NLG's mission to use law in defense of human rights and ecosystems over property rights. Taking leadership from community demands reiterated during last summer's uprising against racist police violence catalyzed by the murder of George Floyd, the resolution calls for the defunding, dismantling abolition of policing in all its forms. A proponent of the police abolition resolution and co-chair of the NLG's anti-racism committee is Kira Kelly. The membership to adopt a resolution calling for the abolition of police and policing, which built on a resolution that we passed in 2016 calling for the abolition of prisons and is part of our ongoing politic in support of anti-racism and of collective liberation and understanding that the law is rooted in colonialism and in white supremacy and in a lot of oppressions in order to challenge that. I'm looking at challenging tools that are used to enforce unjust laws and those tools being police and policing in prisons. Did you talk about how that abolishing the police would look like? Policing in all of its forms, it's not just um, the institution of law enforcement, but also any kind of coercive power over where one group is empowered to legally use violence against another. Essentially, what it would look like might vary from community to community because we're not trying to replace one top-down authoritarian false solution to stopping harm and violence in communities, but rather to say that communities are going to know best how to solve the problems. And without police as a a misuse of public resources, we are going to free up much more capacity to design solutions that work for people and to meet that with compassion rather than trying to kind of engage in this, this idea that revenge or punishment makes people safer because we know that it doesn't. Of all the groups that are most opposed to maybe not having police protection, it might be the very most innocent people, the most vulnerable. Sure. And I guess one thing to do is also to question our concept of crime, because crime is socially constructed by people who benefit from criminalizing certain behavior. And that criminalization is often a way to target black communities, to target poverty, to target neurodivergence. So thinking about harm and not crime, but specifically with regards to 
sexual violence, intimate partner abuse. Police are not trained to de-escalate. They're not trained to evaluate the context of a situation. They're trained to establish control and they are given legal authority to use violence in order to do that. So often they're not the best person to bring into a situation where there is a tense dynamic, where there is an abusive situation going on. And we know that 40% of police, and this is a self-reported statistic, so it's probably lower than the reality, but 40% of police self-report themselves as being domestic abusers. It's not helpful to bring another abuser into a situation that's already tense. And so often people who are in abusive situations don't feel comfortable calling the police because they're worried about what's going to happen. Abuse is complicated. Like, they're worried about what will happen to anybody who happens to be in the house when they call law enforcement in because who knows what that person is going to do. Like, you're introducing a really volatile unknown into an already tense, already difficult, already challenging situation. And it's just not set up to address the root cause of the harm, to address what's really going on that's causing this, this situation to be. What do you think of the mayor he's been touting today? He was touting all the great ideas he's coming up with and going to the city council with. If it's not taking resources away from the police department, in the end, it's not a viable solution. There's a lot of top-down, again, like imposed solutions by people who are calling for police accountability or who are calling for police reform, who are calling for body cameras and those kinds of things. But in the end, if it's not taking resources away from the police and redirecting towards public services, it's not a viable solution. It's just further legitimizing an institution that, since its beginning and has only ever been about propping up racial capitalism. Lawyers are bound by weird ethics rules that aren't what normal people follow maybe a lot of times. And a judge might say, you're violating your ethics rules by being for abolishing the police. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question for, and I think that is a bit what sets the National Lawyer Guild apart, is our critique of the law that so often law schools indoctrinate young lawyers with this mindset that the law is equivalent with moral right and wrong, that crimes are equivalent with harm, and to really try to reject that and deprogram that is an unusual stance for a lawyer to take, especially in a courtroom. But again, we're not advocating for harm. We're not advocating for violence. We're not even advocating for laws to be broken. We're just advocating for the assumption to be challenged that police have anything to do with safety. Eric Kelly is co-chair of the National Lawyers Guild Anti-Racism Committee. And that's some of the news for Thursday, February 18th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. A final word. This cast is dedicated to the memory of former WBAI news director Robert Knight, whose love of space and the promise of science would have been tickled by today's successful Mars landing. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.